Mm, good morning. Gosh, that's some good worship. And uh, some of us worked harder this morning for that worship than others, didn't we? I want to welcome everybody who's at home. It's good to have you with us, joining us this morning, everybody here in person. If you're visiting with us today, let me pay you a particular welcome and just tell you how grateful we are that you are here. I'm Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my privilege to be in worship with you today. Just came out from the Legacy Church uh, where it is uh, actually less snowy than here. It gets worse as you come into town, um, but nonetheless, snowy roads or dry, uh, I believe where two or more are gathered, Jesus is, is with us, whether that be here or online, and so, uh, so welcome. Welcome. Um, before we open up the, the word this morning, um, I, I know uh, I've heard from some of you this week, it's been kind of an interesting week. We've had some interesting weeks over the last few months, haven't we? And uh, some have actually asked me if I'm going to talk about politics in the pulpit this morning, which I would reply with a hard and fast no. Uh, no, but this week I did see some things uh, that I, I thought were too good not to share. So before we open up the, the, the scriptures uh, this morning, I just wanted to share some observations. Um, Tuesday night, anybody awake Tuesday night? Or was I the only one that actually thought maybe we'd find the, an answer that evening? I'm watching as Joe Biden uh, comes out onto the stage. He's speaking to all of his, his followers, and Joe Biden says, I have a lot of hope. I feel that I've, 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 I've got the traction that I need. And then Joe Biden says, keep the faith. Did anybody see that? Anybody remember that? Keep the faith. So Wednesday morning, uh, Wednesday afternoon, rather, uh, I turned the radio on and uh, turned to Rush Limbaugh. Of course, Rush Limbaugh's talking to the other side of America, right? And he says within the first few minutes to his followers, guys, we just need to keep the faith. And I'm thinking to myself, are these two guys talking to each other? What's the... Neither one of them are talking about Jesus, right? Nonetheless, I thought that'll preach. Uh, that'll preach. So this morning, uh, I assure you, instead of talking about Joe Biden or, or uh, Donald Trump, I figured we'd take the next... 28 or so minutes, let's talk about Jesus Christ. How's that sound? Let's do that. Um, I promise you, though, uh, God's word infiltrates our lives right where we are. And I do believe that as we open up the scriptures this morning, we're going to find uh, that, once again, this word is a relevant and timely message for us. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to jump into it with you uh, today. But let's spend some time in prayer before we, uh, we jump in. Will you pray with me? So God, that's our prayer this morning. Would you help us keep the faith? God, we recognize our mission hasn't changed despite the uncertainties of this week. Lord, you have not changed. You do not change. God, you are all powerful. You are almighty. You are all grace, all love, and you are in control. And so God, we just pray this morning that you would change us. Lord, we ask as we open up your word that you would speak to us. We have faith that you will. And so, God, we just pray whatever distractions that are in our heads or, um, Lord, um, whatever to-do lists are on our minds, God, wipe it all out. Lord, would you help us to be open to what you would have for us this morning? We thank you that you speak to us. 
We don't take that for granted, Lord. So as we open up your word, speak to us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. So we're continuing on this morning in our our series on John's gospel. We're in chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 26, 1 through 26 today. Hear now God's word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus replied to her, I who speak to you am he. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So I want to talk this morning about deserts and droughts. Deserts and droughts. If some of you know, I, I grew up in western Colorado. I've got a picture here for you to see on the, the screen. Pretty little town. And uh, it's a valley much like ours, except for the climate is vastly different. The place I come from is a desert, which was kind of fun growing up. That meant you could golf or, or hike pretty much year-round and do so even in a sweatshirt. And so my idea of a a winter storm was nothing like we grew up in this morning. In fact, Adam's from the same town. You'd agree. Yeah, Adam? 
at max, we'd get a few inches in Grand Junction. It was just enough to make a snowman. You'd build the snowman up, and by the end of the day, it was all melted. All that would be left is this blob of snow in your green grass. And living in the desert has a, a lot of perks, but it also brings some unique challenges. For instance, um, in the summers when you got in the car, you'd experience what I would call punch-you-in-the-face heat. That kind of heat when you open your oven door and it smacks you in the face. That was a daily thing. Or seatbelts, those are supposed to save lives, right? Those are supposed to, to be a helpful thing to you, uh, but not in the desert. In the desert, that seatbelt buckle would give third-degree burns in a heartbeat. You grew up in a family of all boys, and it was the weapon of choice in the car. I ran cross-country in high school, and uh, in the summers, practice was over by 6 a.m. because any later than that, and you were going to have a heat stroke. But love it or hate it, the desert is an adaptable place. Right? It's a predictable climate, but a drought is a completely different story. I remember one particular year, we didn't see rain for months in that desert sun, and our, our valley lit up like a candlestick. Ashes lined the streets. You couldn't run your air conditioning because the swamp cooler would pull the smoke into your house, and that dry spell led eventually to one of the worst, deadliest fires in Colorado history it was called the Storm King Fire. A drought is devastating. And it's not just a desert thing. In fact, in 1988, 35 states went through one of the worst droughts in our country's history. The National Weather Service reported rainfall totals in those states was 50 to 80% below normal. Some of you will remember, uh, sadly enough, in that one year alone, nearly half of Yellowstone National Park burned. 1.2 million acres of the greater Yellowstone area. And so what I'm saying this morning is a desert climate is one thing. You can acclimatize and even capitalize on that environment, but a drought is destruction. You with me so far? This fourth chapter of John's gospel has the words desert and drought written all over it. Desert because Jesus comes to this well in the heat of the afternoon. It's 12 o'clock, midday. Christ is alone and he's arguably hungry because his disciples have left and went into town to get food. And it appears that Jesus is also wore out. In fact, if you look at verse 6, it tells us that verbatim. He's weary. He's been traveling on foot for miles in this desert, sweat dripping from his forehead, dirt stuck between his toes. And what I love about passages like this is they remind us that Jesus was not only fully God, he was also fully human. And so in this moment of weariness, Christ sits down to catch his breath, leaning up against the side of this well. And just as he settles in, he sees this woman walking towards him. To us, this might seem like a typical encounter, but I assure you, this moment is anything but typical. In fact, if you didn't catch the nuance of awkwardness in this passage, you might miss its meaning altogether. See, as a woman in first century Palestine, one of your daily chores was to go gather water for your family. And at any well in any town, you would typically see dozens of other women gathered at the same place in the same time. You could only draw one pail at a time from the well, and so this became the social gathering place in town. It was where relationships were forged. But that's not in this scene, is it? The Samaritan woman, she walks to Jesus alone. And the more you dig into the scriptures, you more, the more you realize how much of an anomaly this was. In Genesis 
It was at a well where Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac among all the town's daughters that had been there. In the book of Exodus, it was at a well where Moses found his wife among the daughters of Jethro all gathered in that place. But seldom did a woman come to a well on her own. In fact, if you have your Bibles out, I'll have it up on the screens here as well. Look at Genesis 24, 11. It tells us, the scripture tells us that most women went to draw water in the evening. In the evening. And yet the Samaritan woman, she hasn't come in the evening. She's come at the sixth hour. It's lunchtime. It's the hottest, most secluded hour of the day. Some of you will remember a few weeks ago we talked about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this Pharisee who he too had snuck out in the middle of the night. He had chosen the other 12 o'clock. He went to go find Christ. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus knew he couldn't be seen with Jesus. So in order to protect his image, he snuck out under the cover of darkness at the most isolated hour so that no one would see him. But see, in today's lesson, there is no reputation to uphold anymore. It's gone. See, this woman, she's no longer concerned with her righteousness. She's now hiding in her exposed shame. And unlike Nicodemus, she doesn't go out looking for Jesus. She's looking for a bucket of water before sneaking back home. And here's why I bring up this word drought. Every relationship this woman has engaged in to date is a disaster. She's had five husbands. Every marriage fell apart. And now a sixth man comes along, but by now she's given up on the wedding dress. And all of her life choices have brought her to this place. The embarrassment of her failures was real. She would have been the scarlet letter in town. And so she comes to the well alone. She's self-isolating. She's, she's socially distancing, to borrow our contemporary language. There's nothing left but the, the midday sun. You ever walk through a self-induced drought before? I feel like if there's one thing, if there's one struggle we can all relate to in 2020, besides leaving your face mask in the car when you go in the grocery store, if there's one thing we can all relate to, it's a breakdown of relationships. Anyone feel that lately? Maybe it was just a, a casual drift that was caused by events that have been entirely outside of our control. Or maybe it was that we suddenly realized we disagreed with people who we loved. Even more so, maybe there were things that were said that couldn't be taken back. And some of us, even this, even this week, even right now, in this moment, we feel it. And not unlike the Samaritan woman, if we really stopped to consider how we got to this place, we would quickly discover that it came from the same rooted issue. Play this out with me. Um, the relationship begins really well, right? Maybe even for years, it's, it's smooth, a marriage, in-laws, friends, family, all's good. But somewhere along the way comes turbulence because inevitably this thing called sin creeps into the equation. And so whatever the catalyst, give it enough time, it's bound to happen. We sin against them, they sin against us, and now their relationship is messy. In fact, it's so messy if we're not careful, it'll spill over into another relationship. And then another. And like a spider web, many times we're not even sure how to untangle the mess. And so not knowing how to cover our shame, we save face. We tuck tail and run. Because it's safer that way. 
Just bury the wound and drift on. And in our drought, in the heat of the desert, we find ourselves walking to the well with one less relationship than we had before. And so empty and scared, we, we come trying to figure out what in the world went wrong. Timothy Keller was once asked why relationships are so hard to maintain. He said, that's really easy. Wounded people wound people. It seemed to me that the longer that we remain in relationship with someone, anyone, the more reconciliation is required because the more time we spend together, the more opportunity we have to sin against each other. Back in college, all of our friends had gathered together for a, a birthday party. One of my best friends who was, uh, who was attending that evening was just being nasty. He wasn't grumpy. He was more like angry. And I was trying to figure out all night long, what is this kid's deal? No matter what was said, he was the antagonist in the room. Finally, something snapped in me. And so in front of all of our friends, all the guests, I went off. I mean, I lit him up, used words you wouldn't want to use in this pulpit. And, and, and in, the, in the moment, it felt kind of good, right? I'm not sure how I saw this moment playing out, but he stormed out right out of the room, and it caught me off guard. He didn't come back that evening. The next morning, I went over to his house. I tried to patch things up. I really wanted to apologize, but he kept looking at the ground. And finally, I said to him, I said, really, what is going on? He said, my uncle passed away yesterday. I didn't know how to tell you. No, you have to understand, this wasn't just his uncle. His uncle was a father figure to him, had helped raise him. And I knew in that moment, my little mess up was now a massive mess up. You ever been in one of those before? Like, how do you fix that? How do you make something like that right again? The, the problem with relationships is that our woundedness and our sin goes back so much deeper than we can even understand, I think. In fact, the relational brokenness, even in this story, is about so much more than this woman's choices with her men. It goes back centuries before she was even born. God's word tells us she was a Samaritan. Here's where that, that name came from. Some 750 years before this, God's people had taken captive, were, were taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. And in this region known as Samaria, a remnant of God's people remained. And you would think that these people would have been on their knees asking God in prayer to save them. But instead, for whatever reason, Israel began intermarrying with other people of other religions. And they began worshiping their gods instead. And so over time, to a faithful Jew, the scornful name of Samaritan stuck. To the Jewish faithful, this was a four-letter word. And so a Samaritan was someone who was half of who they should have been. They were traitors. They were defectors of the faith. And so as a result, a Samaritan to that day was untouchable and even unthinkable to a Jewish man. A Jewish person wanted nothing to do with a Samaritan. In fact, look at this in verse 9. This woman tells Jesus that verbatim. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And here Jesus is in the middle of the desert with this woman who is ruined and lost in the drought of her own loneliness. And Christ wants her to understand it doesn't have to be like this. 
But if she's going to break this drought, there's two things she has to understand, one thing she has to do. Two things she needs to realize, Jesus is about to teach her, and one action she needs to take. And the first thing she needs to know is this. Jesus tells her, if only you knew the gift of God. Look at how this plays out. Uh, If you have your Bibles open in verse 7, Jesus breaks all the social norms, right, all the rules. This is a radical moment just to speak with this woman, and he asks her for a drink. She responds, Jewish men don't ask Samaritan women for such things. So Jesus goes right to the punchline. Look in verse 10. He says, if you only knew the gift of God, this conversation would play out entirely different. See, her identity, she believes, is her shame. She's played this out over and over again with all the men that she's known. And she sees Christ and she thinks, we shouldn't even be having this conversation right now. I'm a woman of ill repute. And she cannot even comprehend. She doesn't even know the gift that Jesus has for her. Let's just stay on that point for a minute. Let me ask you, how would you define the word gift? If you think about it, a gift is a universal sign of of friendship, right? You go over to somebody's house, you bring them flowers. It's a friend's birthday, you bring them lunch. It's Christmas time. My favorite candy bar is a Snickers. No, but this is what Hallmark is built off of for the last 100 years, right? Gifts mean friendship. Gifts mean relationship. They are a sign of connection to one another. But here's the other piece of a gift. By a very definition, a gift has to be free. You with me? It's not an award. It's not an achievement. It doesn't come attached with conditions. You can't earn it. A gift is received. And this woman, she comes to Jesus in this relational drought, and Jesus tells her, if you only understood the gift of God, your life would never be the same. But here's the problem with that phrase, if only. We become really good at the if onlys. You know, if you only knew, Ryan, what I did, If you only knew what I've been through, the choices that I've made, the brokenness that I've experienced, if you only knew the guilt that I still hold inside from all those years of pain and suffering and bad decisions. And instead of choosing the gift of God's mercy and forgiveness and love and a new clean slate, we just spin our wheels in this cycle of woundedness and sin. Let me show you how this should be. Look at this in Romans 5.10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved in this life. See, here's here's the problem. We will never fully understand how to love others if we don't first understand how loved we really are. Jesus says, if you only knew the gift of God. But there's part two of this equation. There's a a second thing that Jesus wants this Samaritan to understand. Look at this in verse 10. She has no idea who she's talking to. He says to her in verse 10, if you only knew who it is that asked you for water, you would have asked him. This woman, she understands Christ to be a prophet. This stranger who's sitting by the well, he somehow knows her past. 
And she's impressed by that, but she doesn't in a million years believe he's going to do something about it. Look at this in verse 11. Verse 11 says, she says to Jesus, you want me to ask you for water? You don't even have a pail. We're at Jacob's well. This place has been producing water for centuries. And you're going to give me a drink. This is laughable to her. You know, I think we find ourselves so often impoverished of relationship because we failed to understand just who Jesus really is. First, Jesus understands us more than we can even realize, right? We, we often paint Christ as this superhero, this, this pie-in-the-sky idea of, uh, of this man who certainly couldn't recognize or understand what I'm going through. And yet, even in the scripture this morning, we find a man who is hungry, a man who is thirsty, a man who is weary, and a man we know by God's word who also fought the temptations of this life. Jesus was fully human. And yet we also misplace the fact that this same man was also fully God. He had the power to save this woman's eternal soul, and she doesn't even realize who she's talking to. You know, I would say this morning, if you're struggling in relationship, any relationship, we have this opportunity to look really carefully at why. Because the root cause is far deeper than I think we realize. I'd be willing to bet that somewhere in that relationship, whether with you or the person you are struggling with, is a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Think about this even this week. We respond in fear because we misplace that Jesus is Lord. We respond in anger because we forget who is in control. We respond with revenge because we've lost that vengeance belongs to him. We fail to forgive one another because we're not sure we're forgiven. In just about every wedding sermon that I've ever given, at some point I always like to draw this triangle with words. It's, it's, it's a diagram that you may have heard of before. And I put the, the husband on the left side and the, the wife on the right side, Christ at the top. And I explained to them in this sermon that if you would just seek him, if you would just seek his voice and follow his will for your life, you would be amazed at how God would draw the two of you closer together. If we only knew, Jesus said, who it is that speaks to us. But we don't. I mean, really, the same God who spoke stars into the sky knows everything about you, every detail of your life. The same God, though, who by his very breath spoke life, also now sends his son to die for you. If you only knew the gift of God, Jesus said, and who it is that's speaking to you, your life would change drastically. And if you understand those two things, Jesus tells this woman, here's one thing you should do. You would have asked me. You would have asked me for the water. Here's the thing, that the fallout in this woman's relationships, the fact that she has come to the well in the middle of the day by herself, it actually reveals something far greater inside. Back in 2009, Lake Travis, just outside of Austin, Texas, was experiencing a once-in-a-lifetime drought. And as the waters receded, strange things started to emerge. The lake bed started to uncover secrets that it had held for years, decades. 
There was the usual kind of stuff like lost fishing poles and wallets and cell phones. But then someone found what looked like the roof of a car. And as the waters continued to recede outward, they actually discovered an entire car graveyard at the bottom of this lake. The local sheriff found stolen motorcycles with the keys still in the ignition. They found stolen goods in the trunks of these cars. Hundreds of gold cases were solved. See, a drought is a revealing thing. A drought reveals things that were never considered before. And when it comes to, be, to our relationships, I think we have to get real about this. We are all experiencing droughts. We can all find someone, think of someone, maybe even this morning, who has definitely sinned against us. And if we look carefully enough, we also know the damage of our own sin. And the only way to bring rain on that drought is Jesus Christ. Because deep down, the fractures of our relationships are only a symptom of the greater issue that is the chasm between us and him. In fact, that point is so significant. I want to put it up on the screens. Can we do that? The fractures of our relationships are only a symptom of the greater issue that is the chasm between us and him. Jesus says, if you only understood the gift of God and who it is that's offering this to you, you would have asked him and so this woman, at the end of our passage this morning, she confesses. She says, I'm waiting for the Messiah. And Jesus tells her, I'm the one. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be a spring welling up into eternal life. This is the point this morning. When in drought, we start with the most important relationship in our lives and let the rest trickle down. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that in the heat of the day, in the, the drought of the moment, God, you gave us an example of what grace looks like. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be a story of, of this woman, but God, that it would be a reality in our hearts. Lord, we know we are in a world that is looking for the Messiah, Lord, looking for salvation somewhere, in money, Lord, in politics, in fame, and success, and idols. And yet, Lord, we know that salvation is of you, that it comes from your wounded hands and your wounded feet. And so, God, we confess before you this morning, Lord, those moments where we forgot what it is, this gift that we have, and who it is that has offered this gift to us. Lord, would you help us in our our parched souls, Lord, our, our moments where we find ourselves in relational despair to find everlasting water in you. God, and as we find the reconciliation and the love of Jesus Christ, Lord, would you help us to live that out in all the other relationships in our lives? God, help us to be the agents 
of forgiveness and mercy and grace and love as you have so generously given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.